ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> How are you? I'm really good, actually. I'm really good. Um, yeah, it's been, God, what day is it? Thursday. It's quite a busy week, um, which is good, which is good. But I'm looking forward to the weekend. How are you? You're looking buff. Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I've just actually just started going back to the gym after like a year and a half. Maybe like a wow. Month. Yeah, it's been crazy being in the gym. I love it. I love I it. Know. It's been the worst not going to the gym. I know. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> nice scarf. It looks like you're uh, getting ready to go out or something. Or... Do you know, I'm actually going to take it off because I'm hot. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I put it on because right after I do this, um, I've got to do a um, an audition. Ooh. And um, <laughs> the role is... Cat, like flight supervisor on a plane. I was literally thinking that you look like my friend who works for BA when I yeah. said that. I didn't want to say anything. <laughs> Good, because it means if you think that, then hopefully the casting directors will be like, ooh, look at the, look, you can see in the background my softbox all ready to tape later. Um, yeah, so I, I was trying it on and then I suddenly realized the time and I sat down with it on, but I'm going to take it off because it's very warm in my flat. So yes, if I look like a, if I look like a flight attendant, great. Job done then, right? Success. Oh, me the job. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say what it's for? Is it for a commercial or is it uh, for TV? It's for um, a new TV series called Marriage with Sean Bean and Nicola Walker from Unforgotten. Um, yeah, it's a new. It's from the writers of Mum, so it's a comedy oh. all about the daily you know, trials and tribulations of being married, which some of you will know all about. I don't. Um, yeah, so it's, and it's a, it's quite a funny scene. They're on a, obviously they're on a plane because I'm on the plane as well. Um, yeah, so I've, I've read episode one and it's, it's really funny. So, and it's good because it will see Sean Bean and Nicola Walker who typically, typically tend to do quite dramatic, serious roles. Uh, Nicola Walker, obviously, Unforgotten, uh, The Split, various other things. Um, and Sean Bean, obviously, you know, Lord of the Rings and other things that I can't remember now. <laughs> Sharp from the 80s uh, or 90s. So, yeah, it's nice to see two dramatic actors being cast in something, which is quite funny. Um, so, yeah, I, that's, fingers crossed I get the job. And it's, it's Sarah Crow casting who are lovely. They've cast me in Motherland and various TV commercials and also Avenue 5, which I know you were in, my darling. Yes. I'm you actually know, uh, working with them next week, actually. With who? Sarah Crow? With uh, Avenue 5. Oh, really? So you're lucky. I can't work on Avenue 5 because I was Zeke's mom. Right. Ooh. Sorry, I don't know what happened there. When, when, you, when you play the role of a child... Obviously, because of COVID, there's been like two years where we haven't filmed anything on Avenue 5. Right. So Zeke is now five foot ten. <laughs> so I don't know how long we're supposed to have been floating around in space. Or if they want to bring Zeke's mom back on her own. <laughs> that's crazy, because I had a daughter. So I wonder how that's going to work. I hadn't even thought about that. Like, yeah. That's the thing. She will be a lot taller. Yeah. So I don't know if you've seen your scenes yet, but if they involve your daughter, I mean, they can, sorry, I don't know what's happening with my video. I, I think if they can do some camera trickery, 
Mm. But it's, with kids, it's not just the height that changes. As they grow, their faces change. Yeah, they look different, don't they? They look different. You know, I've got kids, I know. Um, and for Jairaj, who played a young David Copperfield in Armando Iannucci's Personal History of David Copperfield, so he played a young Dev Patel, brilliant young actor. Um, he was like up to here on me before, and now he's taller than me. So unless they're going to spin it that we've been actually floating around in space for like two years. I don't think that that's what I remember reading. I went in to do uh, table reads back in ooh, October, I think it was, November last year. And my character wasn't even in season two. So I was like, oh, shit, I'm not coming back for season two. <laughs> but um, so I, it had nothing. We, we read all the episodes. Um, and there was no real mention of any sort of, at least not that I can remember. Yeah. There was any sort of like mention or reference to how long we've been there since the, the, the previous season. So Yeah, um, it's tricky, isn't it? I think for the kind of roles that, you know, us guys are playing, i.e. not the main cast, right. we're in it so infrequently and not doing big scenes that they can, I guess, drop you in, mm. you know, with like, if you're a parent, like you and I, our characters, um, there could, you know, cause my character was one of the mums, but she was like the alpha mum in her designer clothes. And for what I can gather from the scenes that we shot, which not all we used, unfortunately, these moms, cause it's American, right? These, these, these mummies weren't very good mummies. I mean, for the most part, we, I shot quite a lot of scenes where we're like smoking bongs and drinking in the day. I'm thinking, where are these kids that they're supposed to be looking after? Like, they're not very good parents. <laughs> Just dump their kids. And they're like, oh. Um, but yeah, I'd love to go back. In fact, so many of my friends are crew on Avenue 5 and I had such a great time. You know, it was, a, it was on my bucket list to work with Armando because I love Armando Iannucci. Um, but yeah, my friend is, um, art director on it and I've got another friend who's one of the carpenters on it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like, I want to be on it. <laughs> so I'm hoping Sarah Crow, I'm hoping they might write Zeke's mum back in, but mm. we'll see. We'll yeah. see. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. You know yeah. I didn't know that you had done an episode of, uh, EastEnders. How cool is that? Oh, thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I did that. It, well, I did it <coughs> ages ago, um, but it was on, <coughs> excuse me, everyone. Um, 13th of July, I think was my episode. And I remember it because I was actually out for the evening. Typical me, like I do a job and then I go away and forget about it. And whereas a lot of my friends hadn't forgotten the date of my episode. So I was actually out in a bar and my, my, you know, my, my phone was pinging. I was thinking, God, I'm popular tonight. So all my friends go, oh my God, oh my God. I just saw you when he sent us. And I was like, oh yeah, it was my episode. I completely forgot. Um, yeah, it was just a you know, small role, but it was fun. And for anyone that watches EastEnders and knows EastEnders, it's a soap opera where you always want to get what's called the duff duff. At the end of EastEnders, you get the duff, duff. Do, 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 do. It's like the drums, right? And I got the duff duff. Mine was the last line. I read the Miranda rights. The, <laughs> the camera came up on the crane and I got the duff duff. So I was like, 
Like, yes. Nice. I'm not sure I can put that on my CV, but you know, it was it was really good fun. And it's like, I've done a few things for the BBC now, and the way that it works with the Beeb, and it, which is a nice thing, is once you've done a few roles with that network, you're kind of you know part of the BBC Studios family. So about a week <coughs> after that. I got uh, an audition for Casualty, which is a medical drama, long-running medical drama, BAFTA award-winning medical drama. And um, I thought, oh, it was a really good role, really juicy role. Um, and the director was John Howlett, who directed me in EastEnders, who I spent quite a lot of time chatting to during the day. And he's lovely, great director, brilliant director. So I thought, oh, great, because he told me that he loved my tape for EastEnders. And, you know, so I thought, oh, this is good. You know, this is, anyway, I didn't get the role. And I was like, hmm. So I said to my agent, you know, could you get some feedback maybe? Because I think all actors agree that one of the most frustrating things is doing so many auditions and you're knocking them out. You know, you're knocking them out the park. Your agent's happy with them. You're happy with them. You're positive. You've done everything you can, which is all we can do, right? And then you, you hear nothing. It's like, okay, I get it. I know I didn't get the job, but... It'd be good to just get some feedback. Not a reason why we didn't get it, because we don't need reasons why we didn't get it. We know the reasons why we don't get jobs. Producers have gone a different way. Um, they've cut the role. Or, you know, it, it was just someone else had a better look. Someone else's nose looked better. Someone had a kinder face. It can be as simple as that, right? Or they preferred a redhead with freckles. So we don't need reasons why, but just some feedback, right? To let us, to remind actors that, to kind of validate what we're doing, right? Because when you're doing a self-tape, which non-actors won't know, you know, it's the setup of it, you know, you know, Vaughan, right? It's the setup, the setup for, for us lady actors, you know, it's the hair and makeup, wardrobe. There's a lot of effort that goes into a self-tape. You don't just stick up a camera and go, right? Shit, Learning the lines. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, it's done. You know, um, so they actually wrote to the casting people at Casualty. And the email was lovely that they sent back. And they said, look, Teresa couldn't have done any more. We love the tape. Producers went a different way with it. But she's, you know, we've cast her in a couple of things now. She's very much part of the BBC Studios family. So as soon as another role comes up suitable, we'll be in touch. So even that little paragraph, just as an actor, makes you think, okay, good, good. It wasn't... And I knew it wasn't anything that I'd done. You know, you've, you've got to have a thick skin to do this job. You know that, right? Absolutely. Um, and I, I'm lucky that I've got an amazing agent, uh, Victoria Lepper. She watches every tape from every client. And I say every client, she keeps her numbers low, which is why she's such a good agent. There's no one else in her books that looks like me. Mm. Um, or if they look like me, they're like, they're playing ages 20 to 25, not 35 to 45 like me, right? And casting directors love her because when they when they ask for actors to be sent through, they're not going to get reams and reams of, here's 50 actors for this one role. She'll send one, two max that would fit that brief, right? So I'm really lucky with Victoria that, um, you know, she, she watches every tape that all of us do. And she will ring you when she's watched it and say, mm, it's good. Ooh. I know you can do better. I like that. And actually, here's the note on the character. 
let's say, for example, the character has an edge, but slightly comedic. You have the edge, but I want more of the comedy. Are you able to do it again? Obviously, you're not going to say to your agent, no, I'm not. <laughs> Unless there's a valid reason, like, you know, I'm at a funeral and I can't really do it right now. In which case, you will always try and get an extension from the casting director. But Tori will, will tell us. She'll tell her clients if she's not happy with the tape. I usually do three or four takes. If it's a short scene, if it's a big, long, like, three scenes, I'll do, like, multiple, and then I'll send over two. She'll either, she'll pick her favorite and send it or she'll send both. Hmm. But I think, you know, uh, there's a lot of very, I would say, not so good agents out there. Unfortunately, there's no kind of, you know, governing body for agents. You know, Vaughn, you and I could set up an acting agency tomorrow, register it with Companies House and call ourselves an acting agent. But, and there's a lot of that going on with acting agents that take inexperienced actors or very young actors sell them the dream send them through reams and reams of you know you know they go through the spotlight casting calls mm. send through anyone and everyone they then get a really bad rep with casting directors the casting directors then almost you know will blacklist certain agents if they're doing that right um and they kind of like i say sell the dream to actors but don't actually produce the goods and when i say produce the goods i don't mean get them jobs because it's down to us as actors to get the jobs. What your agent is there to do is to promote you, to advise you, uh, to tell you when you're going wrong, to tell you when you're doing something right as well, to be, to listen to your stuff that's going on outside of your career and to get you in the room. Mm. My agent does every single one of those things, but I've been acting a long time and I've had a lot of agents who some have been good, some have been poor, really poor. Um, and I have to, and I'm not just saying that because I'm with Victoria now. She, she is amazing. She's the kind of agent I could go for a glass of wine with. I could go and get absolutely trashed with. I can tell her my personal stuff if I'm not feeling it. And frankly, I want to lie in bed all day with the curtains drawn. I'll tell her that. Mm. She doesn't judge. Um, she'll say, take the time you need, come back fresh. And, um, yeah, so I think I know so many very talented actors, and I look at their agents, and I think, oh, God, can be problematic, can it? Especially as you said, they build a reputation. And as of recent, I've been hearing a lot about that because I, uh, I have a friend in London, and she is a PA for, for I can't say who, what his name is, but he's a pretty popular actor, like he's up there. And <laughs> she was talking about someone that I know from an agency and talking about their reputation amongst other people, you know, uh, or, or how he's perceived. And yeah, it, I think it can have a, an adverse effect on my career or, you know, whoever's with that particular actor because they won't work with you. You know, they won't work with that particular agent. So yeah. you're coming out on work just based off of some sideline stuff that has yeah. nothing to do with you. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is, because what a lot of actors don't realize is before, because I'm, I'm really good friends with a very big casting director. Who, he's a friend of mine. I won't say who. Um, and he, he's told me a lot of stuff, which is really interesting. Some of which I can repeat. Some I can't. Share. People love to learn stuff. Like, because we had a, uh, a voice actor on here 
whose name escapes me. It's been years, but he, that's all he does. And he, he helped uh, walk, walk through the steps of getting on books of multiple agencies. And that's all he does. And people gave tons of feedback for that. They love to hear that kind of stuff. So yeah, I love to hear that kind of stuff because I'm always learning too. Well, basically the upshot of it, some people know this, some people don't. So for those that know, don't want to teach them to suck eggs, but um, <clears throat> casting directors, by the time you see a job on Spotlight, right? Quite often, casting directors have already gone to another list before that, right? They have their, I won't say favorite, don't like that word, but they have their preferred list of suppliers of agents, right? So if you are lucky enough to be with an agent who conducts themselves professionally, doesn't send through five million actors every time a casting director wants a role, wants, a, a, uh, wants to fill a role, doesn't veer away from the casting brief. So for example, if a casting director, and I know this from speaking to my casting director friend, he said, look, casting directors are time poor. They're often dealing with multiple projects. They're dealing with sometimes, you know, 50 odd roles. They've got producers on their backs, shouting down their necks. We need a shortlist by tomorrow. It's like, hang on a minute, you know, casting directors work late into the night, early mornings, weekends. That's what people don't know. They're like teachers. People think they clock off at five. They don't, they work so hard and they're time poor. So if a casting director, if you're an agent born and I'm a casting director and I send through a brief and I go, right, I want, uh, I want a guy, I want a black male, um, you know, age, playing age 30 to 35 must be over six foot. So you send through a, a black male. <laughs> yeah, you. <laughs> under six feet. <laughs> <laughs> if they send someone through, if you send someone to, to me who is, five foot eight yeah he's black great you've got that right tick playing age mm, really 35 to 40 and five foot eight because you're an agent that thinks ah i'll send it through anyway because you know the producers might look at them and go oh actually he's amazing no it's not how it works casting directors will get so pissed at you they'll be like that is not what i asked for you're wasting my time right? You're wasting my time. A casting director will blacklist an agent. And I don't mean that in a horrible way. They won't be like, we hate you, but it will be when I'm casting again in the future, I'm not even bothering to come to you. Now, the reason why I, this, I discovered this is my friend, Mark, who shall remain the surname nameless. My friend, Mark, I, he was not getting in the room at all. Right. He's like, I don't know. You know, you're getting in the room all the time. Cause I was complaining. I was going, Oh, I've got any acting jobs. <laughs> it's so annoying. And I went, Oh, I've only had, I've only had like 10 auditions this month. And he went, what? He said, I haven't had an audition for six months. And I was like, Whoa, six I was like, months. six months. And I was like, what? And he's the kind of guy who's nothing like me. Like I will pipe up and I'll be on the phone to my agent going, why am I not getting in the room? What's happening? We need to have a chat. He's just putting up with it, which I advise no actor to do. Do not put up with anything. I'm not going to say that sentence, which a lot of actors say, which is, my agent works me. Your agent doesn't work for you. Your agent is working with you. You should be a partnership with your agent. If you're the kind of actor that says, my agent works for me, you need to have a word with yourself because it's a partnership, right? They don't work for you. They are, you need your agent, right? 
and they need you. It's a co-partnership. So I'm saying to my friend, six months? No, that's, that's ridiculous. Have you seen your submissions? Again, no. I was like, why not? Come on, man. Like, you should be asking for your submissions at the end of each month. What have my subs been for this month? I tell you why I never ask my agent, because I'm auditioning four times a week usually. So I know she's working for me. I don't need to see uh, improve for that. Sometimes I ask just out of nosiness to see the kind of stuff that I'm going up for and whatnot. Anyway, I said, at six months, dude, you need to see your subs. He checks his subs. There's submissions on there, obviously. But as he's looking more closely, she said to me, she's putting me up for stuff that literally is not me at all. Like, you know, he's kind of, his playing age is kind of like 50 to 55. <coughs> he's slightly overweight. Da, da, da. She's putting him up for stuff, which is playing age 40 to 45, you know, athletic, like stuff that's not him at all. And he said, I don't like, should she be doing that? And I said, well, no, because you're never going to get in the room for that. But more to the point, even if she puts you forward for something which is perfect for you now, she's probably been blacklisted by the casting director. Yeah, she's she's muddied the waters. He's muddied the water. And this is a shame for my friend because he's a great actor and he deserves a great agent. But it's a vicious circle. He's not getting in the room. Therefore, he's not getting any jobs. Therefore, he's not adding to his spotlight CV. Therefore, he's got no credits. Therefore, looks like an inexperienced actor. Hmm. So what would you suggest somebody do if they're in a situation like that? Should they try and find another agent? Because I know, at least in LA, my experience was, you know, it's, it's very small in LA, you know, the real casting directors, much like you said, with setting up an agency out here, they're everywhere in LA. Like they're everywhere in LA. <laughs> Literally, you leave the neighborhood, you get to the main road where the traffic light is, there's an agency right there. And like Gap or Starbucks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They're yeah. everywhere. It's a nightmare. So you never know who to really go to, you know, because you, you don't know who's, who's uh, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> incredible or not, because you have your you know, you have your, your major players and then you have like 50 million other smaller agencies. So would he potentially, or someone he or she in that scenario, would they be somehow recognized as, oh, that's that one that's always, you know, even if they're with a different agent, like the one that's always being sent out for stuff that they don't really need or how would that no. work? The casting directors um, will never blame the actor for that. Casting directors are always gunning for actors. They're on our side. They're one of us. They want us to do well. They champion us. What they won't tolerate and don't have time for are agents that don't conduct themselves professionally by doing the things that I've already mentioned. That's not the actor's fault. They know that. Um, you know, a lot of actors say, yes, but they'll look at my reel. I can tell you now, casting directors do not watch show reels. So therefore, a lot of people, and I'm not talking about indie, like I'm an indie producer, I'm producing a short film, I'm hopefully producing a TV series. So I'm an indie producer um, of the lowest level. Um, <coughs> and I do watch reels, but I've got the time to do that. Um, the big casting directors, they do not have time to watch reels. They just don't. So it all comes down to headshot. Would they, so my friend Mark, for example, <coughs> if and when I pray, he gets a much better casting, uh, sorry, uh, an agent. Uh, and by the way, I've got, I've got a definitive spreadsheet, which I've sent to so many of my friends. 
I've narrowed it, the agents down to, you know, the, 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 the excellent, the good, and the very good, or excellent, very good, good. The ones that are not good, i.e. I've done my research, I've looked at their websites, their websites are rubbish. I've looked at IMDB, they've got no actors really. I've done my research, I've basically got this spreadsheet. And I, I've sent it to so many friends of mine who are struggling with getting a good agent and they've used it and been successful. Um, so if anyone wants that, <laughs> get in contact, let me know. Um, yeah, I want that. <laughs> you, you know, you, you're doing good, man. But I mean, like, there'll be people out there that don't know where to start. I know what it's like when you, you're either a new actor, you've graduated from drama school or you're older and you're a returning actor uh, or you've gone to drama school later in life that, you know, it's hard to navigate this business. You know, you can have all the talent in the world as an actor and you can be an amazing person. Um, but to navigate the business of show is hard. The only reason I went back to my acting and was confident in that is that I've been acting since I was five. You know, I went to a, a local theatre school. I then went to Sylvia Young Theatre School. Anyone who's British will know Sylvia Young. There, She's run the most well-known theatre school, along with Italia Conti and Anna Cher in the country, right? Sylvia Young has bred people like, you know, Emma Bunton from the Spice Girls, half the cast of EastEnders, um, so, you know, Matt Willis from Busted, all these big performers, you know, not just actors, but big performers. So I'm not blowing my trumpet when I'm telling you this. The reason I'm telling you this is that because I've been acting since I was a child, I learned the business from a young age. I learned about rejection. I learned not to get too bogged down with, um, you know, competing with other people. You know, when you're eight years old and in a, in, a, in a waiting room for an audition and you're looking around at all the other kids, and especially when you're uh, a person of colour, let's say, and especially when I was younger, there weren't many Indian heritage young actors. So I was quite often, there'll be me and like maybe one or two, you know, black kids in the room. Mm. Maybe a Chinese kid or an East Asian kid, but... There, you know, there were there weren't a lot of um, brown people when I was, you know, when I was younger. So I learned the business really early on. I've still got actor friends now who are in their thirties, forties, fifties. They get so bogged down with, oh, it just pisses me off because my friend, you know, we went to the same drama school and he's always doing this and I'm not getting. I'm like the worst thing you can do ever as an actor or in life, I think, not just as an actor, is start comparing yourself to what anyone else is doing. Just focus on you and your goal and your path. Be happy for your friends, be happy for other people. Everyone's timeline is different in the universe. And that's why I say this is in for life, not just for acting. Never compare yourself. It's, it's easier said than done. Like I'm, I'm always missing out on roles to a, a kind of, usual suspects group of actors. One of them is Shelley Conn, right? And I know when I'm up for a role against Shelley Conn uh, in something like The Deceived, which was on Channel 4, which is now on Netflix, <coughs> uh, with Emmett J. Scanlon, psychological thriller. Man, I wanted that job. I got down to the final two after three auditions and found out I was up against Shelley Conn. And I was just like, oh, I'm never going to get it. <laughs> Forget it. Shelly is an amazing actress. We've got the same very kind of Burmese, Indian, Anglo-Indian roots. We look very similar. In fact, for my TV series that I've written called The Stranger I Love, um, 
I really want Shelley to play me. She's perfect. She's a great TV actress. Um, but one thing I never do is watch her on something, like when she got the job, and I think, oh, why did she get it? Uh, you know, never compare. The only person you're competing with in your career as an actor is yourself. Always do better than your last audition. Always do better. You're only as good as your last job. You know, it's like when I felt, when I did EastEnders and it came out, and of course, I did bask a little bit in it for like maybe one or two days with my mates, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I did EastEnders. Yeah, I did EastEnders. After two days, I say, forget it. No one gives a shit. No one cares. No one cares that you did EastEnders. No one cares that I'm in the bird's eye ad. <laughs> like, literally. <laughs> you know, I definitely don't. Um, and I think once you get your head around navigating the business and the industry and just focusing on you, what you're doing, and paying things forward, you know, through my career, I've always had people more experienced. And that doesn't mean older. I'm, you can learn from people younger than you as well in terms of how they work and think, oh, that's a good way of working. I haven't thought of that. Whenever someone helps me, I always pay things forward, right? Always pay things forward. It's so important to do that. I'm a Buddhist anyway, so I'm a great believer in paying things forward. And I will always help anyone, any actor, you know, who's got, you know, questions or needs advice on this, that, the other. I mentor quite a lot of um, younger actors who went to my drama school, which is Guildford School of Acting. And I get a lot of joy from that because it's, it's a hard industry, Vaughan, as you know. It's not, I mean, when you're working and you're on set and you're doing your thing and you're learning your lines and you're doing your job, right? You're in front of those cameras or you're on stage, perfect. The hardest thing about this job is when you're not doing your job. How do you stay sane through the months of no work, through the months of endless auditioning and never getting any response back? Um, the endless months of trying to find an agent if you haven't got one and then signing up with a really bad one because you figure mm, it's better to have a bad one than not at all. That's not true. I was, I've had a few periods of time in my career where I've represented myself on Spotlight Yes, there will be jobs that I won't even be privy to because casting directors can tick a little box when they put their casting brief up for, you know, EastEnders or whatever it is, there is a box that they can check which says, do you wish to see actors who are not represented? And they can check no. And that's because, well, it's not because they think if you haven't got an agent, you're a crappy actor. It's again, because they're time poor. Yeah, they'll probably just get flooded with... They will get flooded with... You imagine each individual actor that hasn't got an agent versus going to 10, 12 agents that you know who will each send you three or four good actors. Right. That's far more economical. But you will still get the, the smaller roles, the day player roles uh, that they can't fill or commercials, which again is another sticking point because I've got actor friends that go, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing commercials. Yeah, I, I don't want to be labelled as a commercial actor. <laughs> fine i mean i'm not a commercial actor i consider myself a decent actor i've got more to learn we all have i'm not the best actor in the world and i, I there is no best actor in the world um but i will do commercials because they are what allow me to be a full-time actor i don't have another job i know a lot of actors do I did when I was a younger actor, you know, and you're waiting tables or you're doing, you're working in a call center or you've got an actual career. Like one of my friends is a pharmacist at, at a big hospital. 
and he's lucky that he's been there a long time and they allow him the time off to go to auditions and all the rest of it. So for actors that think, oh, I'm not sure about doing commercials. Commercials, yes, you're right. I don't consider when I do a commercial, like, oh, this is real acting. It's not real acting, even where you have got lines in a commercial, but it is still hard work. Anyone that's done commercials will know it's long days. The current bird's eye commercial that I'm in, that was because it's chicken grills and chicken dippers. Oh, Jesus, two. Two. <laughs> the chicken dippers is coming out 23rd of August, apparently. I've just been told. Anyway, my point being, that was two days of filming. And because of COVID, we couldn't be in the house. We all had to be out. So we're outside in the freezing freaking cold with big coats on. Inevitably, with commercials, you always run over time because the client's there, the ad agency is there. They're all in a room upstairs looking on the monitor and watching what you're filming. And because it's their money and their budget, you'll never do a take or three or four or even 10 takes. They go, oh yeah, we're really happy with that. It's always like, yeah, we really like it, but can we try it this way? And the director's thinking, that wasn't on the storyboard. Mm. But because the client is there and they're paying for this shoe, often hundreds of thousands of pounds for this shoe, they want to get in as much as they can into that day of filming or two days of filming. Because once you've stopped filming and you go to the edit, it's too late to bring everyone back and do it again. That's it. And I think another uh, one of the things, we were talking about this actually on a commercial I was working on a few weeks ago, is the difference now between what, what the, how they filmed, say, you know, 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. Everything's on a card now, whereas before everything was on either film, you know, or tape. And those run out and they're very expensive. Whereas the card, they can just swap the card, yeah. download it to the hard drive and it's a clean card. Keep <laughs> filming. You can film endlessly, right? You can take yeah. endlessly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolute, absolute nightmare for the actors as well. Like we had a 13 hour day and I was just like, I'm ready to kill myself. It's, it's ball ache because when you're doing film and TV, um, you don't usually run over. It's usually you finish on time because there's different rules when you're filming film and TV, especially if you're in a studio like Leavesden where we did Avenue 5. And generally, you know, during the time where you're not filming, it's great, you're looked after. You've got your trailer, you've got your Wi-Fi, which is always super dodgy and shit, let's be honest, right? <laughs> it's always rubbish. Um, you've got, you know, you've got runners getting you cheese toasties and a cup of tea if you want it. You're in your nice warm trailer. It's great when you're filming on a commercial. I mean, it's like sit there, make yourself your own tea. You know, it's like, and, and I'm not, I will never complain because the glory of commercials, as we all know as actors, is the money is always ludicrous. When I say ludicrous, I mean in respect of, I'm sure any commercial actor will tell the truth. If they're being honest, they'll get their paycheck and go, I earned what? For yeah. doing what exactly? You know, I, it's the best job in the world. You know, like bird's eye, two 16 hour days. Yeah, we were out in the cold, but you get that buyout and you're like, Yeah, all right. <laughs> you're talking four or five figures. Yeah. Yeah. Doing very little. When I compare myself to nurses, paramedics, not compare, because I did say earlier not to compare. <laughs> I'm comparing. I feel guilty, man. I feel bad. It's like, Mm. I, kind of, I, I hear you on that one because I I'll have conversations with with non-actor friends or, or whoever they are in my life and they will sometimes ask and I don't like to talk about it but you know they want to know 
you know, you know, how are you, are you, are you eating? And, you know, da, 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 cause I know you're not working. I'm like, I did a commercial like a month ago. I'm, I'm cool. You know, my, my, my rent's paid for the rest of the year. I promise you. <laughs> All right. Yeah. You know, and they're working, you know, two, three months to make that same amount of money. And it's like, I made that much in a day. Right? I know, but let's caveat that before everyone starts hating on us actors, we right? We don't do it all the time. We don't do it all the time. And that's why you also learn to be <coughs> the best financial controller of your own life. Like when I was younger, I was like, yeah, I got this credit card, that credit card. I'm going to buy those shoes. I can't afford it. I'll pay for it later. It's a credit card. It's not real money. <laughs> when you're an actor, you have to budget. So if you make five, 10 grand from a commercial, that's great. And don't get me wrong, I'm sure if we're honest, we'll go, yeah, you know what? I'm going to go to dinner at the Ivy. Or I'm going to buy my, myself that watch I've been wanting. I give myself one treat when I get a big paycheck. I give myself one treat. The rest is in a, a bank account there to pay my rent and my bills. And all the other things that crop up in life, like my tire blew out. I suddenly need to pay £150 for a new tire. I hadn't factored that into my life budget. But here you go, it's come up, right? 50. What kind of fucking car are you driving at 150? Well, I was, I was, I, yeah, I was exaggerating there. It wasn't really 150, but you know, you get my, you get the gist. <laughs> well, you know, you, I don't know, you crack a tooth and you need a veneer. That has not happened to me, by the way. <sighs> but you know, you get my point. Things crop up. So at, when you're an actor, and I guess, I know this goes for all self employed people, but obviously I'm an actor, so I'm only speaking from my perspective. When you're an actor, yes, you get, you may get a big paycheck for a commercial or, you know, a series regular stuff, or like Avenue 5, you know, that American TV always pays far better than British TV. Sorry, British TV makers, I want to know why there's such a disconnect, because you work for HBO for five days, you get paid this much. You work for the BBC for five days, you get paid this much. <laughs> I don't understand, but anyway, if you're lucky enough to work with HBO or Apple TV or any American production company, happy days but what you learn to do as i say is to is to budget so tightly because you may not work for three four months right you know uh, my other big bugbear which i have to moan about my room 101 is production companies and i won't name any that think it's okay to just take their time paying actors it's not okay you're a big production company you've got millions of pounds we are jobbing actors. We've got rent to pay. Quite often we're relying on that money coming in. Like I know when my agent, I know my agent will invoice on the day that I've done the job. So if I do the job on the 1st of July, my agent is invoicing on the 1st of July for that job, right? For commercials, obviously you, they can't invoice until the day of transmission of that commercial. So even if you film a commercial in April and it airs in July, they can't, your agent can't invoice till July. So actors are also mathematicians because in our heads we're going, right, hang on. Well, my agent invoiced today. So four weeks time that day, I put it in my calendar, bird's eye money due, right? And my agent will tell you, I'm a pain in the ass. If that money's not in my account, I'm like, um, I know this is my money issues. It's not because, and it's not because I'm being a bully. It's because I'm moving house and I need that money for a deposit or um, I, put, I need to put a down payment on something else or, you know, or I need to pay for something for one of my kids or my grandkids or whatever. Right. So Doesn't that's matter what, it's your money. You want it. It's your money. You want it. And, but you, 
a lot of people would be surprised how many big production companies just think it's okay to not pay actors on time. It's not okay to pay us six weeks after. You need to pay on time or early. Early's good. Early's always good. Um, and that's that's one of my many frustrations with these companies. Not all of them. There's thankfully very few. But, you know, when you're an actor, it's kind of people think if you're an actor, you are doing your thing in front of a camera or on stage. But you're essentially running your own business. You are your own marketing department. You are your own finance department. You're your own social media department. You know, you, you've got to you've got to think of yourself as a brand and try to limit anything that's going to damage that brand. And I say that from experience as someone who is very outspoken. I have to bite my tongue a lot because I am the kind of person that I say what I think, as you know, Vaughn, if it's in here, it comes out here. Sometimes I have to go. And sometimes our postings on Instagram, on my Instagram page, and my agent will ring and go, what's that about? <laughs> <laughs> Probably best take that down. I don't mean anything uh, horrible or swearing or anything like that. Just, you know, like, like I will say, it's not okay to not pay actors production. Yeah. And that will normally be because someone hasn't paid me. And she's like, I get you and I agree with you completely, but take that post down. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so you've got to try and make yourself as positive a brand as, as you can. But of course we are only human. And <laughs> I think actors are amazing. I think we are an amazing group of people. We work so hard, even when we're not working, i.e. we're not on set, we're still working. Actors are always working, doing the grind, you know, doing the training, you know, whether that's you're at drama school or you're doing drop-in classes or one-to-one -one coaching or you're doing dialect coaching. You know, you're always trying to make yourself better. You know, Spotlight has got a whole list, you know, Vaughn, of extra special skills. You know, during lockdown, I thought, let me look at those skills and see what one I can start learning, right, to keep my brain going. And also anything you can do to add to your uniqueness and your sellability as an actor is only a good thing, right? So for example, I was thinking, maybe I'll learn to juggle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, I don't think I'm gonna be up for many like clown roles, but you get my point. Or screen combat, stage combat, you know, horseback riding for acting. Obviously these things all cost money, so I'm not suggesting everyone bankrupts themselves and does it, but if you know that you haven't done any screen combat, maybe have a little Google and see which companies do that firearms training i did gun training for film yes i can put that on my spotlight but also it was a lot of fun and i met other actors and then you network and this business is all about people right um, and networking and and again i'll go back to my point earlier about you can have all the talent in the world but if you don't enjoy networking or you don't learn to at least embrace it a little bit you're gonna be further behind than your colleagues in the industry who are very good at networking. Yeah, I learned that living in LA, it's, it's definitely <laughs> something that you have to at least try to navigate. There was, uh, yeah. I think what the casting site was, Actors Access, I believe, and oh, every, yeah. every maybe once a month, they would do, it might yeah. be a week, but they would have these like mixers where they would have free drinks from 
eight to whatever o'clock at these various, you know, bars around LA. And it was just all actors, you know, and you just go and you'd have a drink and you you know, talk to people and so on. So yeah. yeah, yeah. I like that. Why don't we do that here? Or is this like, go- is that going on here and nobody's told me? It, quite possibly. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I like what you said and uh, about uh, not comparing yourself to someone else. There's a book I read by uh, a clinical <laughs> named Jordan Peterson called 12 Rules for Life. And, oh, he's great. Jordan Peterson is brilliant. Yeah, and rule four was compare yourself to who you were yesterday, uh, not to not to who someone else is today. So that's that's very true. Truer words were never spoken, Terry. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about The Stranger I Love? Yes. So The Stranger I Love is, I wrote it as an episodic. So it's a 10-episode series about the topic of parental alienation, which some people might have heard of, some people not. Um, It's based on my experience as a parent, unfortunately. Parental alienation, in a nutshell, is where a child suddenly and without any justification wants to sever ties with one parent. Usually happens after a separation or divorce, but it can also happen while parents are living together and the the relationship's breaking down. And it's where one parent manipulates and coerces a child to not want to spend time with the other parent and in many most cases that child ends up hating the old thinking they hate the other parent so it's something that i went through still going through my son uh, went on holiday with his father two years ago no issues before none whatsoever always been very close to my son absolutely adore him he went away on holiday I noticed on holiday that that, that that there was a bit of a distance. He became more distant during the holiday. He wasn't calling me as much. When he did call, he was it's a bit odd. When he came back from three weeks in America with his father, he said he didn't want to see me. He hated me. He wishes I was dead. All this kind of stuff. I was like, who is this child? I don't even recognize this, this boy. This isn't my son, right? I knew immediately, well, not immediately, but I had an inkling immediately that his father had something to do with it. We've always had quite an acrimonious relationship. We split up when Luca was a baby. Um, And the problem with parental alienation is when it's happening to you, when it first starts happening, you're not really aware because you don't know what parental alienation is. You've never heard that term. By the time you realize what's happening, it's too late. The child is already entrenched with the other parent and has already probably gone three, four, five weeks without seeing you. That's when you start, you have to start thinking about court proceedings to try and make an application to court to find out what's happening. That's the thing I've been going through for two years. So based on my experience, I then started reaching out social media, talking to people. I then realized quite quickly, this is a global pandemic, much like COVID. Um, It's insidious. In America, it's more prevalent. It's estimated around 22, 22 million families are torn apart every year from this. But it happens in every civilized country of the world. So after the initial, the grief, because when, you, when you've been alienated from a child, you are basically, it's like a living bereavement. I mean, I haven't seen my son for two years. It's a living hell because he lives two miles up the road. I... If I turn up to see him or if I tried to do that, you know, I would, my ex would tell me that I'm causing him anxiety and it, I, it would be twisted in court and 
So you have to stay away and go through the proper channels. But the family court system here, like in America and other countries, is broken. You know, there's too many family court cases, not enough judges. So what happens is you have your first hearing, but the time between your first and second hearing could be three, four months. The time between your second and third hearing could be four or five months. So before you know it, two, three years has passed and you've not seen your child. So after I got over the, not got over, but I, you know, you go for a period of literally, you don't want to live. You just think, I, I can't live without my child. I, mean, I, I can't live without them. This is, I'm a very strong person. So I pulled myself out of that depression and that hole that I was in. And I went into fight mode and I thought, right, screw you. You are not doing this to my son and you're not doing this to me. And then after about a year, I thought, you know what? I need to do something which is going to help me and be quite cathartic. So I, I, I downloaded um, uh, Final Cut and Final Draft, not Final Cut, sorry, getting confused with my software here. Final Draft. And I started writing the treatment for a TV series called The Stranger I Love because that is very much what it is. You know, my son is like a stranger to me now. I will always love him, but he it's like loving a complete stranger. And... I then enlisted the, the help of a co-writer, Gabrielle Finnegan, who's amazing. We've worked together for over a year. We have written the pilot episode. We've written the long and short treatment. We've written the, the, the series Bible. So when you write a TV series, you don't have to, you can if you want, but you don't have to write every episode. You write the pilot. We've begun writing episode two, but you write a series Bible. So that gives producers an idea of how this series is going to pan out. What's going to happen to the main characters? How do their stories, you know, start and finish and what happens in the middle? So we did all that. And then I was at the stage where I thought, right, I need to start pitching this now. My acting agent also is, has a literary department. But at the time, she was so busy with, the acting clients and also the literary clients that already had stuff optioned and commissioned that she didn't have time. So I thought, you know, I'm going to do this myself, but it's very hard to pitch a TV series by yourself. Right. Then I spoke to a friend of mine, a contact of mine called Jonathan Moore, who was one of the exec producers on the trial of the Chicago seven with Eddie Redmayne and Sasha Baron Cohen. It's on Netflix based on true story. It's amazing. Watch it. If you haven't seen it, that was Oscar nominated. It recently won a Golden Globe. Jonathan's also been involved with seven Oscar nominated projects. So my point here with Jonathan is you figure he knows his stuff, right? He knows what he's talking about. He's an exec producer in LA. He knows what he's doing. He said to me, Terry, this, epi this episode, this is ready to shoot now. This is brilliant. But whilst you're pitching that parallel, why don't you write a short film? So for me, I'm like, oh, God, really? Ugh. This episodic has taken me a year. Like, this is like, uh, I just want to, really? I've got to write it. I'm just going to sit down in front of my laptop and start writing again. So I didn't poo-poo the idea. I said, okay, okay, why? Why am I going to write a short film? Tell me why. He said, well, here's why. Because when you write that short film, you can then submit that to all the BAFTA and Oscar qualifying film festivals. So there's about 176 of these festivals from like the New York Film Festival, to the London Film Festival, to the Latvian Film Festival, um, random little ones. 
where if your film wins an award in any category, so best director, best film, best actress, whatever, it automatically qualifies them, the film, for BAFTA and Oscar qualification. And it goes in front of the BAFTA and Oscar panel. So I said, okay, all right, cool. What, what, what else? Why, why else should I do this? He said, well, the topic of parental alienation is a really important one. If you think about films like Spotlight, Erin Brockovich, uh, Dark Waters, they are films that have talked about real life stories and really important social issues that have affected so many people. Parental alienation is psychological child abuse and it is going on in every country, every day. Parents, normally fathers, who are told that they can't see their kids, that family courts can do nothing to help because it's the child's wishes and feelings, take their own lives. Every year, fathers take their own lives. And as I've got more involved with the topic of parental alienation, I've realized how important it is to shine a global light on this. And Jonathan said, by writing a short film and getting it out to these festivals, there is a whole audience there globally, which you can educate about parental alienation. If it wins awards, that's going to boost your profile as a filmmaker, which didn't really sit that well with me because I'm an actor. You know? I'm used to being in front of the camera. Why would that not sit well with you, though? Wouldn't you want to, especially as you're at this point in your career, uh, I've, I feel like you would want to have, and I don't know, I guess it's, it's, all, it's all subjective, but more control over the industry, if you will, or more influence in different areas of the industry, I guess. And if you have that ability and you could yeah. take all that training and, and experience and put it into, you know, pr producing. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it's, I think it's imposter syndrome. Mm. How I can describe it. It's like, um, who was it? I think it's Stephen Mangan, the actor Stephen Mangan, who was in episodes with uh, Matt LeBlanc and Tamsin Greg. Great about two writers that go to LA, and it's 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 hilarious, right? He's written a book, and when he was interviewed, he said, "I've got imposter syndrome because I've never written anything." He said, "It's a bit like when you get pop stars and models becoming actors, and you're like." what i'm an actor i've trained i've worked for years and you just come in and swoop in and take the jobs it's a bit like that i think it's imposter syndrome for me where i don't think of myself as a producer so when jonathan said it will boost your profile as a filmmaker i was thinking filmmaker oh <laughs> i'm not a filmmaker i'm just you know i'm just writing my little film my little tv series and and it's so close to my heart you know, it's, it's based on my life experience. It's based on my experience with my son and what's happening to me, but it's also reflective of what's happening to millions of other parents in the world, mothers and fathers, by the way, not just fathers and not just mothers. Um, so I said, okay, fine. And, you know, he said also, if the film does well, and the film is also called The Stranger I Love, so they both have the same name. If the film does well, and raises the profile of parental alienation and what you're doing, it's going to make pitching this TV series a lot easier because you can go to networks and say, here's the episodic, but I also wrote, wrote a short film, which won awards here, 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 here. Right. It's already got credibility at that point. Then. Yeah. And, and who knows, you know, there, I'm not going to name names, but there are many, I've done my research with the other 
live action short films that have been nominated and won Oscars. Some of them are questionable, that's all I will say. I, I, I support and I champion anyone that tries to, or makes a film, makes you know, because we're all in this learning and doing our thing and good for them for being Oscar nominated. But it gave me, it gave me some hope because again, you'll say, well, of course you're going to say this, Terry, but my script is good. It's written well. You know why it's written well? Because it's written about this that I know. If anyone else tried to write about parental alienation, it would, it would not be good. I'm living it, man. I haven't seen my son for two years. This is coming from passion and love and sheer grit and fight that only I know about and other parents that are going through it. The script is good. I've always been good at writing. I was good at creative writing when I was at school. I've written it with final draft. It's written, you know, it's not been written in Word. It's, it's got all the best software. I've had eyes on it. I've had lots of industry professionals' eyes on the script. So I've tweaked and tweaked and changed and adjusted. And it's a good script. So I know if I can make this film, it's a short film. I'm running a crowdfunder at the moment on Indiegogo. There is a Facebook page called The Stranger I Love Short Film. If anyone goes to that, they'll see the link to the crowdfunder. It's, it's hard raising finance for a film. Anyone knows that. It's, it's really not easy. And if I'm honest, I've been slightly disappointed with the parental alienation community. So there are numerous Facebook groups out there. Some of them have 20, 30,000 members and followers based mainly in America, but also in Great Britain, in Canada, in Germany. And a lot of the parents on these groups are the ones going, we've got to do more. We need to educate people about parental alienation. We have to stop the child abuse. We have, and great, I'm yeah, yeah. But yet when I posted the link to the crowdfunder, Nothing. it's like, you guys, you're not even donating a dollar. Like if every person on one of these parental alienation groups donated one dollar, one pound, I'd hit my target. That is less than the price of a cup of coffee. And yet these parents are going, we want to do more, we want to... And even, I'll be honest, even people, friends of mine, good friends, some of them, who know what I've been going through without my son, who know the pain and depression I've suffered living without my son, who think it's awful, some of them haven't donated. And it's like, dude, like. This is why, this is the exact reason why I left Facebook in January. Because <laughs> I actually did. Uh, because um, I was trying to raise money for cancer or something. And, you know, they have like the McMillan cancer thing. And I think this was obviously back in September, actually the year before. And yeah. posting all this stuff. And, you know, and people are liking it and thumbs up. And <laughs> why are you liking and thumbing up my this post click the link <laughs> fucking dollar you cheap shit you know it's like and then and then i've got all these people to be fair the a majority of of my facebook was followers of, of the podcast right i don't i don't have a lot of friends so of of the 2000 people that were on the facebook page maybe like 50 or 60 of them were people that i actually had some sort of interaction with on a long-term basis uh, yeah on a personal level versus you know we we work together on a show or you know yeah we, you know, play golf or whatever so i get it and it's 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 tough and and i don't understand it and it's not for me to understand or to care i'm just i just had to move past it and i'm like okay <laughs> i know no they know where to find me i don't need 
to be here and have my my feelings destroyed by my cheap ass friends. <laughs> I know it's really difficult. And I, you know, going back to what I said earlier, I'm very outspoken. So I have posted on my Facebook, you know, thanks to everyone that's donated. And for those that haven't, you cheap shits. It's like, you know, and my director, Martin Gooch, she's like, yeah, you probably shouldn't post stuff like that because people won't donate. I'm like, they're not fucking donating anyway, so I'm not losing <laughs> anything. Ah! Yeah, they they it's they they see it as you getting in your feelings. I had that actually happen on a podcast. I've got another podcast right after this one, and someone commented, and we were reviewing a new uh, a new album by uh, a hip hop artist. And he says, this guy was from New York and the artist was from New York as well. And he said, that review of, of that, that album was trash. And, you know, <laughs> we're feeling that shit in, the, in you know, Queensbridge. And, and I said, I responded, I said, well, tell me why it was trash so that we can have a discussion about, you know, what you think. And he never responded. And that's what you have to just really approach it differently. It's like, I want to have a conversation about all of it. I don't want to. I don't want to just attack that guy and be like, you know, well, the review was the shit and blah, and we're, we're all hip hop people or whatever. And you don't know shit. Now I'm in my feelings, you know, and it's not. Yeah. It's not yeah. You've got to, you know, I've had <clears throat> people respond on some of these parental alienation support groups and, you know, say things like, oh, this is so great that you're doing something to make a difference. And then it's like, <laughs> Humbleweed, well, and, and literally all I'm asking for is a dollar. If you've got $5, great. If you've got 10, great. I had one alienated mother donate $500. Nice. So, so this is my second crowdfunder for the film. I ran one which finished. I didn't hit my target. So I had to create a whole new one. The reason why I'm up against the cost with it, like most filmmakers will know, is all of these festivals have submission deadlines, which run between, say, January to May. Are you talking about Cannes Film Festival, New York Film Festival, Sundance, TIFF, Berlin, Venice? They all have deadlines. So that means your film needs to have been filmed and out of post-production, color graded, everything, finished, finished article by the time the festival submissions open. Right. So as a filmmaker, I'm up against a clock. It's not a case of, you know, I'm going to try and raise money and then I'll just raise it when I raise it. It's like, no, I wanted to be filming this really early October. This campaign that I'm running now, the Stranger I Love Indiegogo campaign, finishes, I think, maybe like mid to end of September. I've also applied to the BFI for film funding. So I'm oh, praying I get that, which is £15,000. I have a plan B, which again was recommended to by my producer friend in LA who knows his apples. I said, oh my God, what if I don't make the target? What am I going to do with all this money? He said, I'll tell you what you do. You take the money you have earned. Obviously, I will let anyone who's donated know what I'm doing. And if they want a refund, they can have a refund. I'm hoping they won't. Because what I can do with the money that I've raised is go and hire a casting director, like let's say Lucinda Sison or... Nina Gold or Kate Rose James, whoever, hire a casting director to attach a name talent to the episodic series. So if I can get a deal memo, so I pay them, I don't know, whatever, four or five grand, right? I don't know how casting director, how much they charge or whatever, right? Hire a casting director, 
it's then their job to sell my script and get a deal memo. Let's say from Kate Winslet, right? He wants to play my character in the episodic. Right. If you get, the minute you get a deal memo from a named talent, immediately the networks will speak to you. Mm. Even if you don't have a literary agent. Because if you're a writer and you go to a network and you go, hey, I've got this amazing script. You've got to see it. It's an original story, which mine is. It's about a global social issue. So you can sell it in every country of the world, which mine is. It's based on true life. People love that when it's based on true stuff. They're like, yeah, we like that. We like that. They like to think that it's happening to someone, right? Even if you've got all that and you haven't got a literary agent uh, or a production company, a network will go, we don't take unsolicited scripts. It's also for your protection as a writer, okay? Yeah, they just steal your script if they want. Exactly, and you've got no legal comeback. And you can't say to a big network, well, if you steal my script, I'm gonna take you to court. Really, are you? You're gonna afford a lawyer how? I mean. That's how the record industry gets you all the time. Yes, I've got exactly. friends who were huge rock stars in the 90s, been suing Sony for the last 20, 30 years, and they're never gonna get their money because Sony's got infinite. Infinite, exactly. So, so there you go. I'm. Uh, I've, I've got my plan B. Um, and actually, if we manage to attach a famous name, whoever that may be, male or female, whatever, to the episodic, that will open. I've already been told by a number of production companies. If I get a name talent, they'll talk to me and they'll look at the script. Nice. And that just means that okay, we won't make the short film, but we can make the episodic, which obviously is. 10 hour long episodes, which is a lot more, you, I can go into more depth with the story. There's three main characters, not just one. With a 15 minute short film, you've got to make an impact immediately. And yeah, so wish me luck, Vaughn. Wish me luck, everyone, please. No it's, luck. It's so important. hit the link below, guys. Tell, her, tell them where the, the crowdfunding is for the people that are listening again, because I'm going to put the link up on the, on the screen here for the people watching. Okay, so the Facebook page for the film is The Stranger I Love short film. The Indiegogo link, did I send you the Indiegogo? I don't think I did, did I? Um, the campaign is on Indiegogo under The Stranger I Love. You'll see two campaigns under The Stranger I Love. Obviously one will say closed. <laughs> that's quite self-explanatory. That's the old crowdfunder campaign. The one that's running at the moment will say funding. So that's the one you can donate to. Um, please donate anything, you, even if it's a pound. I'm not even joking, because if everyone I knew gave a pound, uh, happy days. It just means that we can hire the best crew, we can pay for the locations, and we can get the film looking and sounding amazing, because, you know, most of the money actually goes into post-production. I'm not being paid. I am playing myself in the, in the short film. I'm not being paid. My director's working for free. My composer's working for free. My editor's working for free. I've got so many great people in the industry that I know because I've, I've been in the industry a while, so I'm connected. But, you know, I don't want people to work for free. I want to be able to pay people and I want the film to look and sound great. You can make a great film. You can film a great film. But if you haven't got the money to get it color graded, to add CGI where you need, uh, to make sure the sound quality and the pitch quality is perfect, it's never going to win any awards and it's never going to have any impact. So... If not to support indie film, to support shining a light on parental alienation and helping all the millions of parents and children out there who are literally being abused every day. I know it's a serious topic, but... <laughs> well, we're serious people here. That's why I brought you to this podcast. Yes, and we are. The, the 
podcast that we're running into time-wise. So I got to let you go. Um, but good luck to you on that. I'm sure it's going to be a success. I'm going to send this out to all our people. You guys definitely hit her up. You guys, you can even, if you can't remember or find her stuff, send it to our cash app at uh, pound sign V3 TV UK. We'll make sure that the money gets over to her from here. Um, you can't forget V3 TV UK. That's easy for you guys. Um, Terry G, um, thanks for taking the time to sit and chat with me today. It was really, really great catching up with you. Anytime, Vaughn. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. I hope everyone has a great day, great evening. These ones or these ones? Saw an episode of Intervention. And I know I'm fine. Illinois, Mr. Robert Bobby McNeely. He is going to join us tonight. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Elaine Zhang, and today I am here with Eli Seal, documentary filmmaker. I need more. Welcome to The Only Way is Linda. Today, I have a really special guest here.